Good evening. Good evening. My name's Prue Keeley, and I'm the chairman of the Sheriffs and Recorders Fund. Um, and we um, are the instigators, if you like, of this debate for Prisons Week, but very much with, very much with um, the Church of St. Mary Lebeau and the Reverend George Bush, who has been extremely enthusiastic and generous in supporting us for a debate which I think anyone who's here this evening thinks is very important, which is about women and prison. I'm so glad to see people from all sorts of um, areas connected with this world here this evening, um, not least magistrates, people from the probation service who I know are here, supporters of the fund, of course, supporters of the church, and lots of other people who have an interest in this area. Before we get on to our debate, I would just like to mention two things. One is that St. Mary Le Beau, and not, apart from being probably the most famous church in this country, perhaps with St. Clement Danes, for obvious reasons, um, is also a church which has its own small charity which helps homeless young people, um, providing them with accommodation. Um, so it's also involved in this area of, of, the, of work. Also, I'd like to mention the Burnbake Trust, which quite coincidentally, but by serendipity, had a, an exhibition on of work by prisoners, um, which you can see behind, and of course, you're more than welcome to purchase the works. When, and if you do, 80% of what you spend will go to the prisoner, which of course is an enormously important contribution to self-esteem um, for prisoners. We are extremely lucky in our speakers this evening. Three extremely eminent people and two extremely high-flying people joining us to uh, spend their Friday evening talking about women in prison. Juliet Lyon um, is Director of the Prison Reform Trust and Secretary General of Penal Reform International. And under her leadership, I think most people would agree that the Prison Reform Trust has acquired an even higher reputation for being the first port of call for anyone wanting to know what's going on in prisons and what the latest serious ideas are for improving them. Nigel Seed is an eminent criminal barrister, greatly in demand as both prosecuting and defense counsel in cases in all, of all sorts across the country. He also has a, a slightly more secret life um, as an expert in ecclesiastical law and chancellor and vicar general of the Diocese of London which means that he's the principal legal officer of the diocese with jurisdiction over all parish churches. And the third busy person who's found time to support us is John Snow. As I'm sure you all know, he's been the main presenter of Channel 4 News for more years than I, and no doubt he cares to remember. And um, we go back to when we were both in our early 20s at London Broadcasting, um, when it was a serious radio station. He's also always played an active role in the many causes around the least privileged and least popular sections of our community. He's going to explain the process this evening and share the debate. John. Thank you, Prue, very much indeed, and, and, and thank you to the uh, Trust for putting this on.
Um, well, good e evening, everybody. Uh, this is a very intimidating situation um, to find oneself with the back to the cross, the son of a cleric. It's a tricky business, uh, but I shall endure it. Um, and it, it's also difficult looking at real human beings. Uh, I only ever see politicians in the studio. Um, <laughs> and um, so the process tonight, well, I'll, I'll declare my interest. Um, I've not been in prison myself. Uh, I've been in police cells a number of times, but not actually in prison. Um, uh, but I uh, do uh, work for a project called the New Horizon Youth Centre. We're all flogging projects tonight. Uh, and we have a lot of young offenders, and we visit prisons. And I used to be the director of the New Horizon before I became a hack, and I'm now the, the chair of it. Um, so there's that, that's my slate cleaned. So tonight, uh, the debate is really to uh, look at the case um, uh, for imprisoning and against imprisoning women. Um, and what's going to happen is that each of our uh, speakers is going to have eight minutes, an interesting length of time, not ten, but more than five. Um, and uh, they will speak to their view of the cause, and then I will open it up to you. We will debate until it is thoroughly done, and then we will uh, allow each of them a short moment to sum up uh, at the end of it. So uh, I'm going to ask Juliet Lyons to start the, uh, the ball rolling. Thank you, um, and, and thank you to um, the, the fund for inviting me to come. I was so preoccupied with being up here, I just had to get used to it. Um, I'm not usually peering down at people, rather the other way around. I, I wanted to start this debate um, because we're talking here about presenting the case for why we should imprison fewer women, to say that this isn't just a mad idea dreamt up by the Prison Reform Trust or other penal reform charities. It has actually been government policy uh, for a considerable period of time. Um, right back in 2001, when the Labour government introduced its new policy on women offenders, it said very specifically that the best way to reduce women's offending is to improve women's access to work, to improve women's mental health services, to tackle drug abuse by women, to improve family ties, and to improve the life chances of young women at school and in the community. Um, and it made a determined commitment then to reduce the number of women in jail. Um, in 2004, the Treasury allocated just over £9 million to what it said would be, it would wanted to pilot radical new approaches to meet the specific needs of women offenders, to tackle the causes of crime and reoffending among this group, and reduce the need for custody. So we've got um, Home Office, now Ministry of Justice, and we've got the Treasury all saying we've got too many women in prison. We've got very recently, um, publication of the Corston Review following the six tragic deaths of young women at Style Prison, which was unequivocal about the need to reduce the number of women in prison. And that's been adopted um, not only by this government, who have accepted 40 of the 43 recommendations, but it's also been taken on board by the Liberal Democrats as part of their criminal justice policy and by um, the Tories, a Conservative government, have taken Corston on board too. So. Um, I think I'm going to end up presenting you with a rather frustrating set of um, facts and figures about women. Um, but I wanted to start by saying that the overall intention of parliamentarians and those in, in power appears to be to want fewer women in prison. So I, I, mean, I, I will now tell you why I think that is, but I have to put a warning in at the beginning that they haven't succeeded. And I, they haven't succeeded because they haven't done enough. Um, to do what they say. It isn't enough to say you want to do that. You have to actually make it happen. And they have stubbornly refused to make it happen. And I think that's a huge disappointment because we're not only talking about the impact of imprisonment on very vulnerable women, but we're also talking about the number of children who suffer as a result of separation from their mothers. And although at any one time there are around about 4,500 women in prison today, that means that over a year, because they mostly serve very short sentences, that we're talking about 12,000 women a year who go to jail in this country, the vast majority, around two-thirds, spend less than six months in prison. But that's just enough to cause maximum chaos in their lives. It's enough to lose housing tenancies, it's enough to lose a job if you've got one, and it's certainly enough to lose kind of contact with family and, and children. And the estimate is there's about 18,000 children are affected by their mum's imprisonment each year. So if we're thinking about 
the costs of imprisonment. I'd urge you to think about the cost, not only to the women themselves, but to their children and to us as a society. Um, and I think it's difficult to put a case for imprisoning more women, or indeed imprisoning as many as we do, given that their offending profile is very much less serious than that for men. So that's a start point. And, you know, had I been asked to talk about vulnerable men, mentally ill men maybe, or children, I, I have to own up, I would have come up with not dissimilar arguments. But I think there are some very particular arguments in terms of presenting the case for women. And I just want to tell you some of the differences between women's offending and their kind of profile and, and men in prison today. Their pattern of offending remains very different. A third of them have no previous convictions when they go to prison. And as I said, two thirds of them are serving less than six months. So for comparatively minor offenses, often repeat offenses, often a result of addiction, um, whether it's a violent offense or a skirmish following drinking too much, whether it's acquisitive crime, shoplifting, handling stolen goods, which is the most common offense, um, usually in order to feed a drug addiction. Nearly half the women in prison, as I said, have dependent children living with them, and they're primarily responsible for the care of the, those children. Now, there is a seminal case. Um, there was an appeal court case, which was heard by the then, the then Lord Chief Justice, Lord Wolfe, um, who, who made a decision that in, in the light of the evidence, a woman should be um, allowed to leave prison a little earlier. Um, and this was the case of Regina versus Mills in January 2002. Um, and the justice is stated in that case, with a mother who is the sole support of two young children, as is the case here, the judge has to bear in mind the consequences to those children if the sole carer is sent to prison. So, of course, you could present that case for, for the men, the few men who are sole carers of their children and find themselves in as much trouble as these women. Um, but they are comparatively few. There are many that would argue that the adverse psychological consequences of imprisonment are somewhat higher for women, and certainly the incidence of psychiatric morbidity is very much higher. So you find more women who've had mental health problems, you find a much greater incidence of attempting suicide and a much greater incidence of self-harm. And I think well, that's one of the things that's very hard to bear about visiting a women's prison or working in a women's prison is that, it's that literally women will stagger from one episode of trying to injure themselves to another. Um, and that kind of destructive, you know, the only way you can draw attention to your pain is to cut yourself or to try and put a ligature around your neck is, is pretty unbearable. It's unbearable for those women. It's very unbearable for the people who have to work with them. The number of women prisoners is relatively small compared to men. There are 84,000 people altogether in the prison population. And that has, a, a, has an unintended consequence of further disadvantaging women insofar as they're held very much further from home than men are held in the prison system, simply because there are fewer women's prisoners and they're dotted further about. So we've got people who've committed, on the whole, less serious crimes. We've got people who have a very florid mental health background, full of problems and, and, co and complex issues, and we've got them held further from home and further from any support that they might get. And if you look at the profiles of women in prison, you find that around about 40% have been victims of domestic violence, very many have been homeless, very many have misused drugs, particularly heroin, They've got education and training needs, very many are in debt, very many have misused alcohol. And in fact, the picture that emerges, and interestingly, the same number that we held in, in prison um, around about 100 years ago would be true today. People in debt, people addicted to substances, women in a desperate state. And as I said, when you visit a, a, a women's prison, particularly if you visit and, and meet women as they come in, the state they're in is really dreadful. Quite often, um, detoxing from drugs, worrying about their children. Many will have not told the children where they are. They will have hoped against hope that because the offence wasn't too serious, that they maybe would have got a community penalty or a fine. They haven't. And they find themselves in prison. And the first night in custody workers, for example, at Holloway Prison, are constantly having to ring up people and say, the child you're caring for now, could you just hold on to that child for a bit longer? Because his mum or her mum's in prison. And the women's children don't mostly go into care. I think you need to know that. There's about 10% or so who go into care, but they get farmed out. And I think the most telling figure probably is that only 5% of these women's children stay in their own homes when their mum goes to jail. So in other words, everybody else is 
farmed out to friends and family, they move schools, they lose friends, and the level of dis disruption is pretty enormous. We, I think, are trying to argue, or I'm trying to argue tonight, that this is a disproportionate penalty, usually for comparatively minor offences. Two-thirds of women go to prison on remand, usually to get a mental health assessment. That is a very stupid way of using a very expensive resource. Prison costs for women over £70,000 a year. And the fact is, it doesn't have to be like this. I think that's where I'm going to, to pause and um, hand over. I'm just checking. I've got one and a half minutes left, I think, if my watch is right. Um, but what I wanted to say is that when I was a member of Jean Corston's review group, one of the things we had the privilege to see is alternatives for, to custody for women, some really excellent ones. We saw the Asher Centre in Worcester, the Caldersale Centre in Halifax, Centre 218 in Glasgow. They were all characterised by one thing. They were all places which put responsibility on those women. They asked them to take responsibility for their lives. They enabled them to do that, and they asked them to take responsibility for their children. And the difference between meeting the women in those settings and meeting them in prison was just indescribable. The women in prison were dependent. They became more dependent while they were in jail. They very often left homeless. As I said, they left jobless, and they left very much less capable of, of looking after their families and themselves. And yet the women in these support and supervision centres really were beginning to come to terms with what they've done and getting skills and getting the ability to not get into trouble again. It was quite remarkable, the contrast. So you've got, you've got two possibilities here. We could go on locking up more and more women and creating more and more dependent women who are going to go back and back, 64% reconvicted within two years of release. It's not a great record for jailing women. So the case I'm trying to put to you really is that, it, that we're doing something disproportionate. And I want to finish with a couple of quotes from women who we've talked to, just so that you get the idea of what the women themselves say about their experience of imprisonment. If I can find them quickly. If I can't, I shall have to leave that bit, but I would like to very much read those bits to you. I think if I can just, yes, here we are. One woman told us, I lost everything. I, basically, I lost friends. I lost my kids through it as well. At the end of the day, prison took my children from me. and Nothing can ever repay for that. I lost everything. I lost the house, everything. Do you know what I mean? It really did screw me up. Now, women have to be called to account for what they do. They're not children. They are mostly adult women. But what I'm trying to say to you, I think, is that they suffer disproportionately and that their families suffer disproportionately. And it doesn't have to be like this. And when you put it to the public, and we've done a very powerful public opinion poll with ICM, back came 86% support of 1,000 people randomly polled who said, yes, we wouldn't mind these support and supervision centers if they would help women get out of debt, get off drugs, stop binge drinking, get some mental health care, and begin to get skilled in and, and, and gain a job, of course we'd support that because that's what would stop this awful cycle from family to family. And I think, you know, what's holding us up? I just want to say um, we need to move that bit further. We need to go from policy to practice. And it's been policy for a long time, but we haven't implemented it yet. So thank you very much. Judith, thank you very much. Um, Nigel Seed? I suppose. Um, I start from the position that there ought to be fewer people in prison altogether. I'm afraid everything that has been said raises issues about prison generally and not just about women. We live in a culture, and it's a culture that has been very much propagated by this government of more and more people going to prison and a knee-jerk reaction. And therefore, there's a knock-on effect. Because obviously, if you are going to have some sort of gender equality, if we're sending more and more, to, more, and more men to prison, inevitably, we are going to be sending more and more women to prison if that is the culture of the day. But my answer to what Judith has said is, and I agree with an awful lot of what she said, but so much, and she did admit that had she been talking about vulnerable men, she could have made exactly the same point about men. So much of what she says applies to men as well. But I start from the premise that you cannot have a principle that, in general, women should not go to prison 
with the concomitant assumption that men in a similar situation should go to prison. That is just a non-starter. Um, there are basic questions about what prison is for. The basic purposes are normally seen as deterrence, public protection, punishment, and rehabilitation. Now, deterrence, I'm unaware of any research which has been done to say that women will be more or less deterred uh, by the threat of a prison sentence for a particular crime than men. So I regard that as neutral on the gender issue. Public protection. Well, as a matter of principle, I would say, and of course I speak as somebody coming at it from an entirely different angle from Juliet. I suppose I'm the only person out of the three of us here, although John did have a stab at the law, he told me earlier. I'm the only person of the speakers who's actually sent people to prison, both men and women. But I take the view that if a woman meets the statutory criteria set out in the Criminal Justice Act as a dangerous offender from whom the public needs protection, it is illogical to the point of being unarguable to say that such offender should not be imprisoned and the general public should be deprived of the protection if one follows the criteria set out by the government for determining a dangerous offender. Prison as a place of punishment. The nature of punishment, of course, depends upon the individual offence and the circumstances of the individual offender. And again, it would be illogical and contrary to our entire concept of human rights to say that as a matter of principle, a woman is less deserving of punishment than a man who's committed an identical offence, depending, of course, and I shall come back to this in a minute, on the personal motivation and mitigation of the offender. And then lastly, rehabilitation, which is probably where the prison service fails most lamentably, but is probably the most important aspect of sending people to prison. Um, rehabilitation is not always achieved, and it's difficult to achieve with men as it is with women. But it can happen. I had only two weeks ago in Portsmouth to sentence two male offenders who were equally responsible for a violent offence. They'd both been remanded in custody. One had a potential job if I didn't send him to prison on the sentencing day that he could go to. The other, who had had a less successful life outside before he was remanded in custody, um, was doing very well in prison on an educational course and on a drugs rehabilitation course. His barrister argued that I should pass a sentence that allowed him to finish his education in prison because he was going to be better prepared for the outside world if I didn't release him that day. Now, if one had a blanket policy about women, you would be depriving them of that sort of situation of rehabilitation. To have a policy in principle of not sending women to prison would have the effect then of actually treating them less equally and more disadvantageously. Now, those are the general principles. There may be, and I do agree with Juliet, there are a lot of issues, and she did cover them in what she said, um, of principle about the administration of the prison system. And I make it quite clear I am approaching it from the sentencing angle as a judge rather than a Home Office apparatchik, because I'm the last person who will ever suggest they ever do anything commendable in the Home Office. And one of the principal problems, for example, is the geographical distribution of women's prisons such that they are imprisoned geographically further from their families, making visits difficult, and maintaining contact with family members is an important factor uh, in reducing future offending when people come out. And there are severe disadvantages because the women population is so much lower than the men, they are actually disadvantaged by the way the prison system is administered. But my answer to that is, that doesn't mean you don't send them to prison. It means you actually get the Home Office or the prison department to get the prison system right. They're not to do with the issues of principles of sentencing. I shall come back to the... Um, although it is important to say that I'm not ducking these issues, and judges must, of course, bear them in mind when they're passing sentence, but they have to do that with, with male offenders. One has to bear in mind that somebody who's been a police informer who's got to be sent to prison is going to be treated in a very different way in prison, and the judge has to bear that in mind. Or paedophiles, of course. They can never go onto ordinary prison wings, and one has to know that they are going to be on Rule 33 when they're sent to prison. But I'll come back to that. I accept that there are fundamental differences between male and female offenders. But I do find it unhelpful to make statements, as is in Baroness um, Corston's report, that most women do not commit crime. Um, more men than women commit crime, of course they do. 80% of crime is committed by men. But most men don't commit crime. The men 
the male criminals are a, a minority of the male population. Sentencing is not a matter where one can generalize. Um, women, there are certain offenses they're more likely to commit, such as shoplifting and handling, as Juliet said, but that is not a reason for having a general principle that they should not be imprisoned for theft by shoplifting, for the obvious reason that there are a lot of large commercial shoplifting operations where women are sent out by controllers into large stores to do shoplifting. Now, if it was known, there are men who do it as well, of course, if it was known, well, women are never going to be sent to prison if they're caught, it will only cause these operations to expand. Similarly, in the more obvious case, is the, the drugged mule. Mule is a contemptuous term we lawyers use for the person lower down the drug dealing scale who will import drugs for a serious drug dealer into the country. They are often uh, vulnerable women, often very old women, pensioners. And the idea is, well, no judge will send them to prison if they're caught stuffed with cocaine on their way over from the Caribbean or South America. Well, of course, if it became the policy that you didn't send women caught with large quantities of cocaine, well, they'd be much easier to recruit uh, and no men would ever actually carry cocaine. It would only be women because they're not going to go to prison. So you cannot apply these general principles. Now, turning briefly in the three minutes that remain to the personal, sentencing involves considering the offence that's been committed, the victim, and there is no such thing as a victimless offence. That's often said, even shoplifting from a big store, there are victims, and they're you and me. Because large-scale shoplifting, and we do have a large-scale shoplifting in this country, means that the price of goods and the cost of insurance go up, and the company don't bear that, Marks and Spencers don't bear that. It just means that the public have to pay more for the goods which are being stolen by other people. So there's no such thing as a victimless crime. Victims always have to be taken into account. But then there's the offender, and this is where I suspect I agree with Juliet. The sentencing judge starts with the offence, which will have a maximum prescribed by law, and he has to fix guidelines, or he has to follow guidelines set out by Parliament and applied by the Court of Appeal. He has to consider the impact of the victim. And then there is the, the offender. And that's when the personal circumstances of that individual and how different sentencing options will impact on her are taken into account. And that is always the case. And that includes childcare issues, issues of self-harm, other family issues, people who have to be looked after. And it applies as much to men as to women, but it will apply more to women because so often they are the sole carer for a child or looking after some other relatives. Virtually everything that has been said is properly applicable to that part of the decision. And I do accept most of what Judith says, but it only comes in at that stage, that when you are considering the personal circumstances of the offender, which judges are supposed to do, then you take into account the fact that the offender is a woman with all the other possible problems or possible not problems, and many of them could be problems for men as well in that same sentencing situation. Thank you. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> Just before I open it up, I'd like to um, uh, ask a couple of clar clarificatory uh, questions. Um, Juliet, uh, if, if there are too many women in prison now, how, how many of the 4,000 plus that are in prison should be in prison? <laughs> well, um, not so very long ago, I'm just looking at, at, at the date, um, there were fewer than 2,000 women in the prison system. Um, and that was, ooh, back in the late 1980s, I think. I mean, I think, in, in reality, if you, if you think that, that two-thirds of people are going in, two-thirds of women are going in for, to serve less than six months, then they haven't committed a very serious or violent offence, or they would have got a longer tariff. So if we were actually to divert the mentally ill into treatment, addicts into treatment, if we were able to adapt community service programs specifically for women, because one of the things the Chief Inspector of Probation has told us is that there are very few community sentences tailored to women with childcare so that they can actually complete those sentences. So they break them and then they go into jail. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you actually did that, I think you could, you could legitimately shrink the women's population by two thirds. That would be my estimate, so that over a year, there would, yes, be 4,000 women who went through the system, but there would be 8,000 who didn't, and we as a society would be the healthier for it. Um, Nigel, it's the same question dressed up slightly differently. Um, how often 
sitting as a judge, have you sentenced people to jail? What proportion of the people you sentenced to jail do you think should not have gone to jail? Um, well, I don't know whether there are any knocks here from the Lord Chancellor's Department before I answer that question, but the answer is I am very loath to send anybody to prison unless I can see the point of it. Uh, violent men, um, I can see the point of sending them to prison by and large, and will do so. Uh, I also take serious um, financial fraud situations where people are going to profit from their crime. If you can't confiscate the money because they've already spent it or something like that, I will send them to prison. But by and large, I will try and find a way out. I have sent very few women to prison, and where I have done so, I have been quite confident in my own mind. It was the only correct thing to do, A, for that person, and B, for that offence. Uh, and normally, it would have been something that was going to be reported in the locality, and one needed people to know that if you have been convicted of that sort of offence, that is how you were going to be dealt with. Well, let's open it up to um, uh, points from the floor. I mean, this is not uh, the crudest form of debate. It's a more rounded experience. So uh, feel free to make points and perhaps to, to quiz our uh, two uh, debaters. Um, does anybody have a point they would like either to draw out or to inflict? Yes. Yep. Uh, in the third row, back row there. Too close to your mouth. Not too close to my mouth. Okay. Um, hello. Um, a closer, than that. closer than that. A bit closer? Can you hear? Okay. Fine. Um, I declare my hand. Um, I'm somebody who has an interest in the health of people in prison. Um, and yes, I obviously do believe in equality, but unfortunately I'm afraid that there are some disproportionalities in this debate. Um, Lord Carter, when he did his first report, uh, which led to the creation of NOMS, pointed out um, that, far, that there are far greater within that 4,000 of women who are, who are on remand than there are men. The difference in the remand population and the male, in women and men is different. More women are held on remand, and those women do not actually land up there are fewer of those women who land up with a custodial sentence. So I think that we could divert those people from custody. Um, there is an additional disproportionality, and that is the behavior of women. Um, unfortunately, um, there is a difference in the proportion of women who display um, deliberate self-harm um, among, there's a difference between women and men. And women are at far greater risk. Um, they may not intend to kill themselves, um, but I'm afraid they do land up killing themselves because their behavior by virtue of their distress is such that they adopt a, an aggressive and serious self-harming behavior. Um, and they may have had a trivial, um, a trivial offense, it may have been, it may put its name down as arson, but actually it's burning the curtains in your hostel. Um, and it is, a, is as trivial as that, and then you may land up um, unfortunately dying. One of the most moving things I've, I've seen, and um, um, I didn't know Juliet was going to be here, but is a film um, purely of the children of women in prison. And I can assure you that is one of the most moving things that you will ever see. Um, here are these children telling you of the experience of what, whilst their mothers are, are in jail. Um, and so I think you do have a double jeopardy. And, and I think that's quite important. And then the last thing I will say, which is not quite on this subject, but we talk about the prison service and rehabilitation. I'm very sorry. Um, I work in the health service. The, health, the difference between the health service and the prison service, if you want people to be rehabilitated, then I'm afraid you have to make a significant investment. Thank you very much. Um, well, well, Nigel, three of those, I think, were broadsides. Uh, the first was the disproportionality of remand. Uh, the second was self-harming. Um, and the third, 
you got. So um, you go for it. Yes, well, I was quite interested about children in prison because, um, in fact, I was a member of the Board of Visitors of Holloway Prison for four years, and I was sacked by the Home Secretary for being too liberal in the way I stood up for the rights of the women in that prison. Uh, and I think my sacking was organized by the governor because I was constantly castigating her for not adopting the proper procedures. I would pay regular unannounced visits, as a board, member of the Board of Visitors was entitled to do, to Holloway, and I would visit the mother and baby unit and do all that sort of thing. So I do have some experience of women and babies in prison. I'm working backwards through the points. I, uh, I'll now go to the first point. But, but, I can't... but before you go on from that, I mean, what, what did it teach you? It taught me that uh, the children were, of course, being disadvantaged by the punishment for the mother. I wouldn't necessarily know, coming at it from that angle, why they were in prison. But equally, I see, sitting as a judge, sending men to prison when they have been the sole bread earner and they may have committed fraud and they've been providing money which is going to stop, when they go to prison, you then know that their wives, women outside prison, and their children are going to suffer. It, it made me aware of the suffering of children in prison, but I've been equally conscious that there are children outside prison who suffer as a result of other people going to prison. I don't understand why so many women, more than men, are on remand. Um, the government, of course, has, has been constantly cutting down and restricting provisions under the Bail Act, as I indicated about custody generally, is requiring more and more people not to have access to bail in the way they used to. I'm unaware, and I don't realize, sitting as a judge, that more women are being remanded in custody than men, so I can't really help with that. Self-harm, of course, I accept that more women commit self-harm than men. But men do commit self-harm, and all the pre-sentence reports I get on any defendant I ever sentence always assesses that by the probation service, and that is one of the personal factors one takes into account when passing a sentence. And prisons are supposed to be mindful of that, and when there is a real risk, uh, keep a watch on those offenders. Juliet, is, is um, the question of the disproportionality of remand something you've quizzed the government on? Yeah, we, and what's we, the explanation? We wrote a report called Lacking Conviction, which was about women on remand. Um, I mean, we found out, as I said that earlier, that two-thirds of women enter prison on remand. A, a fifth are actually acquitted, uh, as we've be, been told, um, and around about a half go on to serve a community penalty. So only half of those remanded um, actually, actually end up serving a custodial sentence, and that one usually a fairly short one. When we tried to find out, it did get more difficult, I have to say, because one of the things that was disconcerting was how... how um, patchy the record keeping from different courts was. In some instances the courts would give detailed reasons for remand. In other cases there was scarcely a tick in a box. Um, the case had maybe taken two minutes to hear and prison staff were frequently saying to us we don't really know why this woman's been remanded. The prevailing reason seemed to be um, to get a mental health assessment. That seemed to be the main reason why women were, were sent to prison in order to keep them in one place to get that assessment. And that did seem a ridiculous reason for imprisoning a woman and separating her from dependent children. Do you think it might have been because of decent, warm-hearted men like uh, Nigel C. Um, didn't want to send the women to prison, but nevertheless wanted them to have a short, sharp shock of being deprived of their liberty until the court met to decide their case? Well, well probably worse than that, nice men. Uh, like my um, opponent, may well have thought there is, there is a provision for remand where you can remand someone if you think they're a danger to themselves. And we've been talking about self-harm. Uh, I mean, that's another likely reason why these women were being remanded. But of course, it, compo it compounds the problem because it means a woman has, has been through that experience and she's, she's now an ex-prisoner and all that that's going to, all the baggage that that's going to involve. Just say on that, that uh, the, the woman who is remanding custody and then gets a non-custodial penalty, it's probably not the judge who remands in custody or the magistrates who remand in custody pending it going to the Crown Court who've taken the view that will give her a short, sharp shock. Quite often what will happen is when she comes up for sentence having been in custody, the judge will take the view that that is enough. Uh, she has experienced prison and is now going to let her out rather than give her a sentence then. Okay. Um Another point from anybody on the floor. 
maybe someone will arise and say, um, that life is not tough enough for these people. Right, let's, let, let's have you, ma'am. It's a question really for both of you. Do you think that the reduction of legal aid has had an effect on the prison population? Bearing in mind, very often people appear before myself and my colleagues, I sit as a magistrate, unrepresented. Excellent question. Um, Nigel. I would think it almost certainly has, and probably far more in the magistrate's court than the Crown Court, because normally there is legal aid by the time an offender gets to the Crown Court, and it will certainly impact on people being remanded in custody, because um, bail applications, uh, the, the average offender, male or female, would not know if the police have asked to remand in custody what sort of arguments to address to magistrates or judges. That person really does need a lawyer. By the sentencing stage, people normally would have a lawyer, but I'm certain that it will have impacted on the remands in custody. I don't know whether Juliet agrees. I would agree, but I don't have figures to back that up. I mean, it, it, it makes sense. And we've, we've just this week, earlier this week, published a report about people with learning disabilities, both men and women, in the prison system. And one of the things that was disconcerting about that was finding how few people had been represented in court, some of whom had such impairments that there would have been a question about fitness to plead, I think. Um, and only a third of, of those people had had any kind of appropriate adult with them in the police station. Where, where I've certainly come across it in relation to women in prison is where, why don't they appeal? Because very few women appeal their cases. And it, and it seems largely, in fact, because they're given very short sentences and they'd rather keep their head down, try and get someone to cope with their children and then get out than risk creating a fuss, not being represented because they probably won't. They may not get adequate bail advice from the prison. Um, but prisons that do give good bail support, the, the women very often do get out on appeal um, and don't subsequently serve a sentence. Um, so I think, I think there are um, real difficulties, but I haven't seen any work that specifically looked at the impact of legal aid. But I agree, I agree with Nigel, this is bound to have an impact because it's, it's poor people who can't afford to be represented, who are mainly in court. Oh, go for it, yes, sorry had a profound effect. I, I used to work in the legal profession doing criminal work and I know a number of people who attend the police stations to represent defendants and the cutbacks have been so profound that hearings that would have been attended by a representative are no longer attended because there's no fee in it. If you're paying somebody a flat fee for doing nearly nothing or loads of work, the chances are they'll do nearly nothing because they won't get extra money for doing loads of work. Whereas previously they were paid on um, a scale, on an hourly basis more or less, there was an encouragement to make people get out there and do the work. I know, because I used to do it. Well, um, I, that, that's a, a good and strong point which will be taken on board, I know, by many people. And it, it is an issue of public debate continuing. Uh, let me take you, because you had the next hand up. I, would, I was going to be a sort of uh, David Dimbleby and say, you in the burglar bill top. But yes, I, 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 thought I'd, <laughs> I thought I'd come dressed for the occasion, and I'm not going to stand up because I'll feel very awkward having people behind me. But um, I'm concerned that what Nigel said is not really uh, recognized enough by... Um, very well. I'm not, obviously not loud enough. Um, by many of the people who choose to comment on these things and certainly people who read newspapers about it. Because it is the third phase that Nigel described, the actual, when you come to the sentencing phase, where all of these things should and generally are, should be and generally are taken into consideration in my experience. And a good example of that is this remand figure. Um, because when I did criminal law, which I don't do anymore because as we say at the bar, crime doesn't pay and it really doesn't. The rates of pay are extraordinary. Uh, and nobody who can get a job doing anything else uh, will do it in the future. Um, one of the things that you did do if you had a vulnerable client, whether it was uh, somebody who had children, somebody with mental health difficulties or what have you, is that you wouldn't allow the judge simply to go along and sentence at the first sentencing hearing. You would ask for an adjournment in order to get them assessed. They would spend probably not more than three, months, uh, three weeks on remand, whereupon you would be able to get them out. Now, if you didn't put them on remand for that period, if you didn't um, uh, ask for the adjournment, then they would go straight to prison. So the fact that a large number of these women and vulnerable people 
are on remand, and generally vulnerable people will be on remand disproportionately to the general prison population, is actually evidence that the system, I regret to say, uh, in the context of this debate, slightly embarrassed, is working. Because it is those people who are getting access to proper assessments so that the court can then make the decision to release them. And that although they have crossed the custody threshold, they can be released. So I, I urge why, why, why do you need to do that in the context of a prison? Why could it not be a more humane, more local facility? Because what one has done, this is just on the, on the remand angle, what one has done, uh, what one has is a client who has crossed the custody threshold. That is to say, what they have done is sufficiently bad, either that there needs to be a punitive element or the public needs to be protected. Um, the rehabilitation point we haven't yet come to at, at that stage of sentencing. Um, that person, the judge cannot release into the community because it would not be right in principle. But you may be able to persuade the judge to do so by having them assessed. And that is why they'll go on remand for three weeks while they see uh, the appropriate specialist. So it's, it, one should be very careful uh, of that particular remand figure uh, because it is, oddly enough, evidence that the system is taking into consideration their individual uh, difficulties um, and that will be reflected in the sentence. It's a rather cogent argument, eloquently put. Well, it, it certainly links with Nigel's argument earlier on about the rehabilitation and the purpose of prison to rehabilitate. Um, and I must admit, I've got much less enchanted by that idea. I, I worked for the prison service for four years and encouraged people to see themselves as, as providing a socially useful service. And I, and I do think they do, but I think there are limitations. And I think one of the saddest things about prison reform is it's led to partial investment and improvements that have encouraged the courts to use prison as if it was a kind of capacious social service. You know, because we've invested in prison health, people are much more confident um, in the courts at sending people for a detox or primary mental health care. They in small improvements in, in education have encouraged people to think that young offenders might get a second chance in prison. And this is just frankly nonsense, because if you think of what the impact of going to prison has on people's future um, and their lives, whether you know the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act, which hasn't been amended since 1974, means that if you serve six months in prison, you're going to have to declare that for 10 years to any prospective employer, 10 years. Um, and women time and again, and, and, and in fact anyone in this situation, whether it's, whether it's young people or men or women, will all say, what do I do? Do I lie and risk being found out and then lose my job? Do I tell the truth? I don't get an interview. I mean, I don't think we should ever underestimate that the damage done by prison and how the best staff in the best prisons continually work to try and moderate that harm. They continually work to try and help people become employable, try and help them get housing, try and help them make connection with their family. But, but, but if I, we don't need to do it, let's it, not do it. Could I put it to you that, that you are a judge suddenly and the woman comes before you and you are absolutely convinced she needs help, urgent help, which won't be got unless she's put somewhere where the help is applied. Okay. Uh, what do you do? You say, well, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to pass up this opportunity to get her uh, uh, mentally assessed, to get her the necessary detox, etc. Well, what do you do? I, if, if I were in that position, I'd be... Yeah, shall we let... Yeah, no, let hear from here. Yep. Of course. What would be wrong with a Section 2 under the Mental Health Act? Hmm. Well, I think so you'd have to have doctors advising. You'd have to have doctors who were, were prepared to come to court and say that's what you should do. Judges can't do that of their own initiative. I think, you know... If that's what you achieve by remanding them, Burglar Bill says. We have got to a rock and a hard place, uh, I think you'll agree, will you not? I mean, that we, we seem to be somewhere near the truth as to why so many women are being remanded, and it's because it seems to be the only mechanism by which it is possible to, to force the authorities to mentally assess, detox, and treat somebody in very urgent need who has offended. Well, the answer then is shame on us. If that's true, shame on us. Because 
if I were a judge, I'd be hopping mad if I didn't have the kind of disposals I needed. I would be furious not to be able to give a drug treatment order or to have a place like the Asher Centre or Calderdale where I knew I could confidently send women and I knew they'd change. But isn't the implication of your case that actually, take it as it is, we're simply locking up too many people? What you're now saying, surely, is shame on us we don't have other facilities. I guess you therefore have to lock an awful lot of people up. No, I'm saying, you know, the government at the moment is setting aside extraordinarily in an economic downtime 2.3 billion to build and plan for tightened prisons. Um, you know, this is an extraordinary thing to do. That doesn't include the operating no. costs. If it's got that kind of money, let's spend it on proper alternatives to custody for women. We now have a forest of hands. We're in a lot of trouble here. So I'm going to take you, sir, next, and then you, ma'am, at the back there. And the, the, the mic's coming your way. It's just a simple question. What do other countries do? You mean, you haven't mentioned that. I mean, sir, what other comparisons in other countries? So if you'd just like to address that and give it some sort of in, in some context, thank you. Best question of the night. I must say, the first question I asked as I came in tonight, I said, how many people does Holland lock up? I, when I worked in the field, Holland locked up 15 women, 15, one five. And they had other facilities for all sorts of other mechanisms, part-time prison, etc. And we haven't heard any, and we never do. We never, people don't like to talk about other countries. Ha. <laughs> well, I haven't got the facts and figures here, although I have got them back at the office. Well, but I think we the reality, fund you to do it. we the, should fund you to do it. The reality is that we we incarcerate more people generally than anywhere else in Western Europe, and we're rapidly passing most Eastern European countries. As far as women go, um, I think John's mentioned Holland. That is a particularly good example of where they use community sentences, but they do also use those sentences in Germany. Um, I've been to a, a centre in Germany where they have serious and violent women offenders who I think most of us would agree would need to be detained in some way or another. And they had a much more um, radical, I suppose, or humane approach, which was to have a centre which was partially staffed by prison staff, but other multidisciplinary staff outside of prison walls where the women were curfewed. They had to return in the evening, but they could go out and work in the daytime. Their children could continue to work, to live with them. You see, we take children away from prison, probably rightly, by the time they're two or mostly 18 months, because the impact of being in prison is just going to be too grotesque for them. But if in Germany you have a centre which is in an ordinary community, albeit staffed, and the women are closely supervised, then you can afford to let them live in a much more ordinary and, and proper way. So I do think that you're, it's a really good question, and I wish I had a better answer, because I think if you do look at, uh, at alternatives, you find very many, particularly in, in Scandinavian countries, but also, as I said, in Germany, and in Canada, yes, in Canada. Well, um, there are a lot of calls on our, our, our pockets these days, and in this very church we could first of all give some to the Vickers uh, Homeless Young People's Fund, we could then give money to the Sheriff's and Recorders Fund, but if you've got any spare, maybe a dollop to the Prison Reform Trust to do one piece of really important research, which, which might even be done on the internet in large measure. What do other countries do? And I think that would be a very useful piece of research. Uh, you with the next questioner, and then uh, three in from you. Good evening, my name's Mimi and I, well, I'm an ex-offender. <clears throat> um, I'm an ex-offender, my name's Mimi. Um, it's really interesting to hear the judge t talk about the sentencing and what, um, under what guidelines that you give people sentences. I think from the women's perspective, um, within what you're considering, you're not considering actually that in the majority of cases, women are the, 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 the ones that look after the family. When men go to prison, they tend to have women, whether they're moms, sisters, um, whatever relationship, but they tend to have women that will support them throughout their sentences. This doesn't happen um, as often um, in the cases of women. Um, the impact to the children because they have moved away and the lack of encouragement um, with, within the service to take responsibility for looking after your children and dealing with schools and housing and all of those issues so that they don't actually stop being mothers and 
you know, spend their time in prison under stress, which is why they get depressed and become um, self-harmers very often, um, begin uh, addictions, um, um, have breakdowns. Um, you know, if they were allowed to be able and encouraged to, to, to carry on with their responsibilities, whilst at the same time giving back to the community, um, then that would create empowerment and it would um, not create as many social problems as taking children away from uh, mother's cause and actually creating the next generation of um, potential offenders. Um, we need to, you know, I'm, I'm, we need to look at that. In regards to the remand situation, very often women will be in remand long enough to lose their housing, their children, and then they come out after not having to, you know, being found, for instance, not guilty, um, and then everything's falling apart by then, which means that, you know, they can't get their children because they haven't got housing, they can't get housing because they haven't got their children, they can't get work, um, and then there's the, the carry on, the, you know, the cycle of going back to maybe crime or being placed in a position because by now you've built. Um, um, contacts in prison to actually commit crime so that you can just survive. Um, there's unique things that women undertake socially and which is what is expected of them and by not um, trying to address those needs and actually empowering these vulnerable women that you know well it's be, are being put in prison so that they could be um, safe um, you know, we're just not going to reduce your offending. Um, life isn't going to get any rosier. And we are just creating um, further damaged people and actually making them more dangerous. I'm a, as I said before, I'm an ex-offender. I um, went to prison for a long sentence. And I have been out for five years. In that time, I have tried very much to give back to the community. But there are the issues of um, disclosure and the potential that that brings. There is the issue of having to rebuild the family ties. You know, for five years I've been out trying to rebuild these family ties, next to impossible now. Um, and no support when you come out at all. Um, you know, these are things that need to be considered at the sentencing stage. I'm not very confident in pre-sentence reports and all of those things because judges have guidelines and if you've committed a crime that is, gives compulsory um, custodial sentencing, then that's what's going to happen and all of these issues ha are not going to be um, addressed under those circumstances. I want to ask you, Judge, if you had the choices of having centers so that women could address their addictions, so that they can begin to create a lives for themselves as opposed to breaking them further down. Would you use those um, options in the hope, you know, in the belief that actually these people might then become more contributing uh, people? I know I have, and I didn't get that through being in prison. I got that by coming out here and being fortunate enough to meet people that gave me a chance. Um, and I've been able to find a place in the community. So, you know, would you take those um, opportunities up? Well, I think it's very brave of that um, lady to say all that she's just said, and um, a great tribute to all that she's done with her life since she left prison. Speaking for myself, I have never sent a woman to prison for her first offence, save one who had committed defence of causing death by dangerous driving while under the influence of drink and had denied it and fought a contested trial and shown no insight into her offending. All other women that I have sent to prison, it has always been as a last resort when various other sentencing options have been tried, including uh, drug rehabilitation courses and so on. Uh, and it's only when they have come back before the court for the fifth or sixth time and everything has been tried and failed that I would ever use prison. And there are situations where that has to happen. I also know of women who have been on remand in certain prisons where they have come with reports at the end of their remand period to show that they are really progressing in terms of their drug rehabilitation. And they do go on. I know that all rehabilitation is a minority, both with men and women. But it can happen. And sometimes that is encouraging. Um, but I do not send anybody to prison as a matter of course. It has to be when other sentencing options have dem been demonstrable failures. And one has to eventually say, 
look, you've had so many chances, this is the only thing we can do to mark the seriousness of your offence. Um, yes. Sorry, I'm going to take the lady in front of you and then I'll take you and I'm afraid you'll have to be the last because uh, the, the clock has ticked. Thanks very much. I wanted to come back to really the point where Juliet started, which was talking about the gap, or maybe it's a gaping chasm, between policy and practice. And um, Jean Corston's report, which I think is a very fine report, um, which uh, the government uh, set up after the six suicides in style prison, is really an essay in clarity describing vulnerable women in prison, how prison makes, makes it worse for them. The women around 75, 80% have got serious mental illness, they've got drug uh, problems, many, many other problems, and these are not being addressed. In fact, they're being exacerbated by being in prison. So it's not that the report, and you will know very well, is not recommending that there's no punishment at all, but talks about um, setting up secure units that might be local to where the women live that meet their very complicated physical, psychological and social needs, including those of their family. So what I really would like to hear from possibly both of you is what you think is stopping the implementation of this really visionary report. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, pause you until we've had the last question, then I'll ask you just to sum up for you mm -hmm. already get about a minute and a half to do it. But you know, in television, we say, if you can't take a minute and a half, it can't be said at all. Not worth saying. <laughs> um, uh, sir, you were going to make one point there. Forgive me, sir, but I don't think you answered the lady's question. Can't hear. I said you will forgive me, sir, but I don't think you answered the lady's question. I respect that you probably only sentenced late, um, offenders as a last resort. But could you actually answer the lady's question about if there were alternatives, would you use those? Exactly what I said. When the alternatives have been used and failed, then one has to use prison. My question was on the basis that, yes, one uses the alternatives first, and prison is only ever a last resort. Um, do, do you want to say anything else as a little final parting shot? Yes, there was one point that might have um, made me think about the remand, but I'm not sure it would apply to women any more than men. And the gentleman in the front row, his question about uh, remand and people en ending up not getting custodial sentences uh, because things have been in re revealed in the report, I think <clears throat> the general public don't un really understand what a draconian sentencing regime was introduced by the government in the 2003 Criminal Justice Act where there's a schedule of offences, including really very trivial offences, and if somebody has committed one of those in their past and comes up having committed another, a sentencing judge then has to go through the dangerous offenders procedure. So almost inevitably, somebody convicted of one of those offences will be remanded in custody, while there has to be assessment as to whether that person is a dangerous offender and should then be remanded in custody indefinitely. In other words, it's essentially just sending them to prison without limit of time for comparatively trivial offences. And I, a lot of this problem, I suspect, has been caused, and I did hint at this at my very opening remarks, about the increasingly um, draconian regimes and obsession with pr prison that the government seems to have introduced. And I think that will be my closing remark. It still worries me. Thank you very much. Um, uh, let, let's have a final one from you, Juliet. I think we might, we're in danger of closing on a, on a mark of agreement because the, the question is why not implement something that is so blindingly obvious? And I think it's a really good question. And not only has the report been accepted, but not implemented, but also, as I said, there's a public opinion that comes in support of it. There's cross-party agreement. And there's um, at least 30 of the biggest charitable foundations in the country who've said very firmly to the Justice Minister, if you will create these support and supervision centres for women, we will match your funding. We want to help you do this. And I think the answer is utterly clear that it's a lack of political courage, it's a fear that it's a vote loser, misplaced, I think, um, and it's a diminishing pot of money. Um, and as I said, you know, to put aside, n at least notionally, enormous sums, billions, for so-called Titan prisons, which everybody knows would be a gigantic mistake, is, is really close to um, a tragedy. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. And if 
government had the courage, if it could listen, perhaps make sure that women in prison, former offenders, people who know and work with people in the justice system, you know, I said at the very beginning, this is not something hatched up by prison reformers. We're proud to be part of a movement to try and take things forward. But actually, this has been seen as sensible policy for years. And it is this lack of political courage and now diminishing money that really is standing in the way. Um, well, uh, I would like on your behalf, it's not often one gets the opportunity uh, to thank George Bush for anything. But, um, and I'm afraid poor man, he's probably had many of these jokes made before, but I would like to thank the rector very, very warmly indeed for giving us his church to uh, have this um, experience in. And what a great idea two pulpits are, you know? I mean, uh, it's a really excellent, and, and I think every church should have two. Um, and uh, so I would also like to thank both Juliet and Nigel in the usual way very, very warmly too. I'd like to um, thank the staff of the church as well, because I didn't mention them. But um, it strikes me that uh, you just may conceivably know somebody who knows somebody who knows a contract banker. Now, the thing is that the Sheriffs and Recorders Fund, which is a completely brilliant, brilliant fund, which targets money directly to people coming out of prison who need transitional help and are being looked after by an agency. Very often agencies are looking after people but they don't have the actual money uh, to make the difference for the individual coming out of prison, to pay for somewhere for them to stay, uh, to pay for training or whatever it is. And this is where the Sheriff's and Recorders Fund comes in. Prue Keeley has amazingly with her administrator got to the point at which they have effectively an endowment of 750 thousand pounds, which enables them to run roughly uh, uh, a giving of around a hundred thousand a year. Now the thing is, what would really make the difference would be if they could get to a million. So if you know anybody who knows anybody who knows somebody who's not feeling too good about their recent past, uh, but hasn't had to serve time, um, well maybe even has had to serve time, but nevertheless is perhaps willing to part with a bit of cash, that would be a very good place to send it. Um, all it remains for me to say is really to thank you for being a fabulous audience. Really, really good. I mean, uh, it's very interesting to look uh, down, you know, at the faces and realize that nobody slept at all during that. Um, and and a very, very engaged. And in fact, we were very gifted because we had, uh, you know, the senior um, health person in the entire prison system. We had a very important uh, psychologist. But I think above all, I really would like to pay tribute to you because you have experienced what we're talking about, and it's very rare indeed to have somebody come forward and share their experience and their perspective. And for me, actually, with due deference to both our speakers, for me, that has been the most important thing tonight. So I'd like to thank you. And now what we'd like you to do is to join us in a glass of something and, um, you know, have a quick chat and all the rest of it. Thank you. Great.